Current Weekly on Dublin Digital Radio. Well, I think that we certainly are a maimed people in this country. I mean, we're a maimed people to the extent that there was a language in use in this country, that language is gone. There's no denying that the Gaelic language today is an endangered tongue with just approximately 2% of the population who speak it on a daily basis. And given the, the relative absence of an economic need for it in this global commercial world, some academics have stated that barring exceptional measure, Gaelic as a community language may not survive beyond the next two generations. When we say we're trying to identify ourselves, I'm not quite saying that we're trying to define a national identity. That's a different kind of thing. To, when you talk about a national identity, I'm not quite sure what that means. But when you try to identify yourself, it means you've got to produce documents, you've got to produce sounds, you've got to produce image, images that are going to make you distinctive in some way. If there's a sense of decline about how the country is, it's because we can't, we can't readily produce these identification marks. It shouldn't, really shouldn't, because when you're history, the facts of history that shape us, but images of the past embodied in language. We must never cease renewing those images, because once we do, we fossilize. You're listening to Current on Dublin Digital Radio. I recently caught up with Adam Ramsey of Open Democracy in the UK. Adam's a journalist who has published extensively on minority language rights. Adam recently published an article about how the ongoing dispute over the Irish Language Act in Northern Ireland has been covered somewhat derisively in The Guardian. This article caused quite a stir online. Of course, there's far more to minority language rights than just Irish. The UK and Ireland have, by Adam's estimation, at least 18 native minority languages. Given the ongoing difficulties over the Irish Language Act, alongside the resurgence of interest in Irish here, which events like the pop-up Gaeltacht and books like Mother Folklore have created, it seemed like a perfect time to talk to Adam. This is Patrick McCusker and with me today I have... Uh, Adam Ramsey from Open Democracy. Adam Ramsey is the co-editor of Open Democracy, and you may have heard of him recently. He wrote a very interesting and very pointed response to The Guardian's editorial on the Irish Language Act. Uh, for any of our readers who haven't read it, uh, would you care to explain it very quickly? Sure. So, so The Guardian um, wrote an editorial uh, on the political events around the Irish Language Act and the ongoing negotiations to get the assembly back together in the north of Ireland, and um, and they used what I would consider the kind of fairly consistent Guardian kind of sneer that you find uh, often adopted uh, in recent years around the various minority languages of the UK. They basically sort of said that this was all um, a kind of an attempt by. The, by Sinn Féin to politicise uh, this issue and it's socially unreasonable of them, etc. And so I wrote a response saying that uh, minority languages 
are important and should be defended, and that you know the, the um, what's happened to the Irish language, as with other minority languages across these islands, has been um, you know a fairly brutal process. In, in the case, I think of Irish, it's been a cultural genocide, um, which is you know a very politicised destruction. And those who stand up for uh, minority rights are always accused of being political when they do so, but it's disappointing when uh, The Guardian, which is perhaps the most progressive of Britain's main newspapers, participates in that. Uh, definitely, definitely. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about minority languages in Britain? Um, other than Irish, Welsh, Scottish and Manx, are there any other ones that are particularly interesting? Well, there are, there are, I mean, I reckon there's about 17 um, languages across uh, the UK as a whole, um, native languages, that is, not, not including the many uh, immigrant communities. So there's a lot of traveller languages that we never talk about. Um, Britain has uh, its own uh, version of Romani called Anglo-Romani, which has, I think, about 30,000 speakers, native speakers, um, which has got no legal protection at all. And I always think it's fascinating how little that's ever discussed, that we have this incredible you know, native traveller language that really gets no mention or coverage in the press at all. Um, there's a series of other traveller languages. There's um, a Welsh Romani, which is, whenever you look it up, it always says nearly extinct. And I'd, I'd love to find out more about you know, whether, whether there are, are remaining speakers, although, as I understand it, often... It's hard to find out because people have been so oppressed, they've been taught to be ashamed of the fact that they speak this language. So although they can, they often would admit to it, which I think is a real tragedy. Um, there's, uh, Scotland has its own distinct traveller languages, um, one which is a lot like the Irish shelter, um, which is a kind of a, it's a traveller language close to Scots Gaelic and, and, and to Irish in Ireland. Um, there's um, uh Polari, which is a language which was spoken um, by sort of underground communities, it was spoken by the LGBT community before it was decriminalised, and also various sort of travelling communities, particularly sort of um, travelling show, travelling circus community, um, and that, that's sort of on the verge of extinction. And, and there's Hebrew, which I would argue is an ancient native language in the UK as much as it is, you know, across much of the rest of Europe. Okay, that definitely sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, so very quickly, because this is something that I think is largely ignored, uh, particularly here. Has the British state or the, even just the various regional assemblies and parliaments been doing very much to protect or encourage the survival of minority languages? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so Scotland passed uh, its Languages Act um, more than 10 years ago now under the then Labour Liberal Democrats. Executive, which recognised Gaelic and Scots as um, you know national languages of Scotland alongside English, and there's been various you know um, funding for schools and for cultural events and so on. And in fact, that does look like that succeeded in Scotland in stemming the uh, reduction in the number of people speaking Gaelic. Um, and you know, what was interesting in the last survey figures, the last census figures in Scotland, um, which came out, well, which is the 2011 census, was that although there had been a slight reduction in the number, the rate of reduction reduced dramatically and largely, you know, because an old generation did, is dying off who speaks it. But there was, in fact, a small increase in the number of younger people speaking it. So, so what you find is sort of middle-aged people 
don't really speak it because they didn't learn it at school 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But actually, there are now more younger people speaking Tagalog than there were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, which I think is a very positive sign. Similarly, you know, the Welsh Assembly, since the evolution to Wales, has done a fair amount. And although, you know, it's a very different story, obviously, Welsh is much more prevalent than Gaelic. Um, and there's a whole different story which I'm less familiar with. I'm, I'm Scottish and based in Edinburgh. There certainly have been, you know, attempts in Wales. And so these things are normal. And so, you know, what, when people talk about an Irish Language Act, what they're talking about doing through the Northern Irish Assembly is the same thing has happened in Scotland more than 10 years ago and has happened in Wales and so on. It's not an unusual process in um, the various nations of the UK. Okay, good, good. Now, there's one thing that I think is very heavily overlooked. Well, actually, there's two things. Uh, the Guardian has been, and other major outlets have been very vocal about what, one of these things. They've slightly overlooked the latter. The first of these is the problem of so-called digital extinction, mm-hmm. which is, I suppose, been going on in some way, shape, or form for as long as there's been the mass media, so for about 200 years and so on. But do you think that the, I suppose, the, the possibility that uh, these you have a younger generation who have been, who are overwhelmingly exposed to English uh, through, I suppose, you could argue fairly closed circuits like television, uh, popular culture, the internet, and so on. Do you argue that that's, this is something that they're, has to be some action or some initiative taken to um, accommodate or address if you want to protect minority languages and so on? I suppose the way I see a lot of this is that capitalism is kind of ultimately monopolizing. And what's happened more and more within kind of the media and culture is that you've seen the growth of monopoly power within those within those industries and cultural industries. So, you know, you have Hollywood in America, you have, you know, particular media outlets which become, you know, incredibly dominant. And for them, you know, they, they, they push a particular language, they push, push not as not as English, but English with a particular in a particular form, with a particular accent, you know, so the BBC English in Britain. Um, and that, you know, that process is what erodes a lot of language. And how do you struggle against it? Well, partly that, that is about understanding that at core this is a sort of, um, this is about challenging that kind of monopoly capitalism and challenging it in, in culture as much as in more traditional ways that we would think about it. You know, so, so for example, absolutely you do need measures by the state to mediate against that because otherwise, you know, capitalism left to run amok in this field would absolutely be monopolizing and would, you know, crush. You know, I often think it's not insignificant that uh, linguistic diversity and biodiversity have a very close correlation across the globe. And partly that's, of course, for sort of natural reasons and, and the ability of communities to survive. But I also think there's a kind of interesting question about whether it's also because those places which have been able to, uh, well, well, because capitalism doesn't, you can't find a financial value for either of those things. It can't find, can't monetize biodiversity or cultural diversity. And so 
it's happy to destroy them. And that, you know, just as it's, you know, crucial that we use our democratic spaces, we use governments and the protection of the state to protect wildlife and biodiversity, we should similarly be investing in supporting the flourishing of different cultures and cultural diversity. And absolutely that means, you know, investing actively both as people, but also, as, you know, collectively through the state in, you know, a set of institutions in order to support the modernization and the ongoing modernization of languages, because languages and cultures, you know, have to stay alive and adapt with technology and the times. It's not just, they can't be stuck in the past and, and you know, where cultures survive, it is because they, you know, continue to be fun and used by each generation in turn to do the things that we find useful. Okay, good. But with regards to technology uh, in particular, and this is something that I've even been thinking about myself as an Irish speaker, uh, so much of this is controlled by a tiny handful of companies, <clears throat> nearly all of which are either from the, the Anglosphere or work primarily through English. Is this something that even the state really has any any power to address? Well, I mean, the state always has power to address things if it has to be, you know, interventionist. I suppose we suffer from the fact that uh, over the last 40 years, neoliberal government has told politicians that they're not allowed to intervene, but they are allowed to intervene. You know, as a society, you can make democratic decisions to do... You know, anything within the sort of physical possibilities, physics and moral possibilities, you know, of justice that, that we deem fit. Uh, so, of course, the government could be, and governments could be investing much more in, in these things. And, you know, you know and, and, and I'm sure that, you know, you asked a question about, you know, digital. So if you think about the UK, BBC has an absolutely vital role in the advance of digital technology, the invention of iPlayer in Britain was a massive advance in terms of you know, online technology in the UK, came long before Netflix, etc. And absolutely, you know, these you know, these public institutions have a role or not in protecting and advancing cultural diversity and, and our various languages. And, and you know, actually the BBC has played an important role in, in advancing Gaelic, for example, um, for a long time, and, and obviously could do And that continues to be true as technology. Okay, good, good. And I suppose it's definitely your kiss in that one. I know, for example, that a S4C in Wales has been a major success story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, S4C uh, was set up um, after a massive campaign by Welsh politicians, as I understand, by Plaid Cymru. Uh, if I remember right, there was a hunger strike at one point, and um, you know, d- demanding Welsh language broadcasting. And yeah, they won, and and it's been a huge success. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, I mean, interestingly, I think the only full-time, I think this is right, the only full-time journalist covering the Welsh Assembly uh, is well, well, journalists are the Welsh language ones. There's more thriving Welsh language media in Wales, and there is English language media in Wales. Um, because they're willing to, you know, focus on the Welsh institutions, which the kind of Anglis, where the Anglosphere always looks to Westminster. So, um, so absolutely, you know, these things can do well. 
Definitely. Now, this brings me to the second of the two issues. And this is something that I see happening in Ireland, and it's been happening in Wales since at least the 70s. And that is the murder by neglect or intentional uh, depopulation of areas where the language is still spoken as a first language. Uh, For example, in Ireland, funding for Gaeltacht areas has been cut by 75% in the last 10 years. And the economy has become incredibly dependent upon Anglophone tourism. As I understand, it has in quite a lot of Wales as well. Mm. And you could say the same about the Western Isles in Scotland, um, which are the main remaining Gaelic-speaking area. Um, I'm sure you know that austerity has has delivered real cuts to those areas. Uh, and, and absolutely, I suppose you know, for me, thinking about you know, you could talk about Scotland or or, or in fact Wales or Ireland when you could think about questions of land ownership and rural economies, because often these, although not always, but often these are primarily rural languages or languages spoken in rural areas. And, and you know, the, there has been a very uh, you know, well, massive changes to rural economies over the last 40 years, 100 years, 500 years. And, you know, some of those things are good. I grew up in a rural area and, you know, in many ways, life is better for a lot of people. But there's also, you know, huge, huge problems, and those problems drive depopulation. And the economy is not set up, it's not, it's not the product of the forces of nature. The economy is a human system that we choose to make as we do and can remake in different ways. And, you know, obviously the story in Scotland of the Highland Clearances is a very familiar example. It was a, an intentional process of depopulation because of a combination of uh, the political reaction to the Jacobite uprising and because it was more profitable to uh, have different industries and because the people making decisions were those who relied on the profits rather than the workers relying on, on you know, the wages of the land itself. And so... Absolutely, you know that that you can't look at any of it thinking together about the cultural and economic questions, and that a functioning economy would uh, not be undermining rural areas in the same way. And I think one of the positive stories I would tell from Scotland is that um, again, if you look at the last census, the Western Isles in Scotland saw an increase in its population for the first time in I think two hundred years. And a lot of that's happened because of a massive community land buyout movement, where now 75% of people in the Western Isles live in land that's owned by their community and run democratically by their community. So rather than landowners taking the wealth out of those areas that's produced by the workers there and running off with it to go and be rich with it, the wealth is now reinvested in the communities and they have more assets and they have more jobs and they have more homes and they have more kids in their schools. And so that you know helps keep the languages alive as well and help survive them, but it also more generally helps survive the community. So I think absolutely you can't look at the uh, question of language without asking questions about how our economies, and I think this is true particularly in the UK and Ireland, and in fact even more so than in a lot of other European countries, never mind the rest of the world, that you know both have been very rapidly urbanised 
partly because of the process of what I would call financialization. So as financial sectors have become the key economies, both in Britain and in Ireland over the last 30 years, so you think about Dublin and London in particular as you know two of the world's most important financial sectors, and that has, you know, in a sense, by you know um, squeezing out other sectors of the economy, it's pulled people and wealth and investment into both of those cities. I think it's true in both cases that sucks investment out of the rest of the economy. Because you know, if you've got money to save, then you don't invest it in uh, kind of you know someone's uh, potential business in you know, the west of Ireland or in the west of Scotland because you invest in houses in Dublin or London because house prices are going up so fast. And that is a disaster for the economy in general, but it also sucks a huge amount of wealth out of those areas. And as I was saying before, you know, that in the West Niles, the solution they found, which is community land ownership, democratic management, has actually worked very, very well. And I think it's an example for all of these areas. Now, this brings up a very interesting point. One of the most recent good news stories for Irish and, from what I can understand, Scottish, Gaelic and Welsh in the last two years has been the rise of the pop-up movement. Have you heard of this at all? Um, I know about pop-ups more generally. I don't know about this in the linguistic sense. In Ireland and Scotland's pop-up Gaeltacht is the term used. I'm not sure. I won't even try to pronounce the Welsh one. But uh, essentially put, it's um, an open, openly structured, open-ended conversation group uh, held on a la- very large scale at which anybody who sees fit can arrive. Now, what's interesting is that most of the people who attend these are not native speakers. They have been educated, at least in Ireland, primarily through Irish and have come to identify as Irish speakers and has created what's thought of as a language network. So these are people who live in Dublin, Belfast, and across the, across the world, really, who identify as Irish language speakers, despite the fact they may not necessarily come from Giltox, in some cases are the first person in their family for 100 years who speaks Irish to a high standard. So what, ex- what do, you, do you see anything in this idea that you can form networks within much larger communities as opposed to uh, exclusively Irish-speaking, exclusively Welsh-speaking communities? Well, well, so I suppose it, it maps onto a phenomenon that we've seen, you see much more generally arriving at the moment, which is, if you think about the difference between communities, it's a geographical community, so the community of people around you in a physical space, and communities of interest, as in people who you have a particular shared interest with and are therefore in touch with, whether that's, you know, a sport or a cultural thing or, or politics or, or whatever it is. And absolutely, you know, with, with the shrinking of the world through the growth of both digital and, you know, physical transport technology, we do see a, a massive increase in the importance of communities of interest rather than geographical communities. Not that geographical communities aren't also important, but you know, it, it's now just as easy to, for me, from my flat in Edinburgh, to talk to you in Ireland via Skype as it is for me to go and get in touch with the neighbour over the road who I've never met before, but, you know, who's, who's, who's flat I can look over into now. Um, and that, you know, that, that means that if languages are to survive, they have to map onto the communities which actually exist. 
And it's increasingly the case that communities of interest are going to be a vital part of that. And that, you know, the, 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 the things which survive are those which adapt to technologies as they emerge. And, you know, absolutely, you know, shifting you know, boundaries of people's communities uh, has in many ways defined a lot of the changes in the last 20, 30 years. And if languages are to flourish, will be through communities of interest as much as it is through geographical communities. It'll be because people, you know, all across the world uh, find it a way way they enjoy to communicate, a way they find useful and enjoy communicating as much as, you know, because people in a particular place find it a useful way to communicate, a way they enjoy communicating, or that, you know, just their primary means of communication. Okay, that's great. All right, listen, um, this is about all we have time for. Uh, Thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry, I was late. I have one, just one very final question, uh, and this goes into communities of interest and so on. Would you like to hope or to think that if, for example, in a major city like, say, for example, London, where you could easily have nearly every one of the uh, 17 minority languages of Britain represented, that this could help with more a more pluralistic idea of who is and isn't British than the present one, which, as you pointed out in your writing, is overwhelmingly Anglo-centric. Absolutely. So, so I think that there's a very, you know, what that Guardian editorial and other things we see around it at the moment, the response to the Irish language act more generally, a lot of, a lot of the questions around Scots and Gaelic languages we've seen in Scotland recently. I think what that marks is the fact that sort of Anglo-British nationalism has become increasingly um, defensive and angry, and, and it reminds us that foreign nationalism is a linguistic nationalism. It's tied to a language. You know, in, like England is unique in the nations of the UK in that it marks itself. Its self-identity is around a language. You know, the, the English people originally were the Angle, they were the people who spoke English. Mm-hmm. And that's not true of you know, Welsh, where there's a complex linguistic politics. It's not true of Scotland, which ever since it was formed in the 8th century, it's had three main languages at least. You know, mm-hmm. so it started out as Pictish, Scots, and Gaelic, and now it's English, Scots, and Gaelic. But, you know, that's, it's had three languages forever. It's always been a multilingual society. And that if Britain was ever able to reinvent itself as a kind of modern pluralist society rather than a kind of dying empire, then that would happen through acceptance of its kind of many cultures and that would be many languages. Now, I expect that's not what's going to happen, except what's more likely to happen is that the UK will break up and England will have to go through that process of accepting its cultural diversity as England but England does have cultural diversity, you know, it's got long-term traveling communities with different languages. And of course, you know, at what point do immigrant languages become native languages? That's always, you know, a difficult question. And so absolutely, you know, that sort of the, the demand for a homogenous linguistic culture in the country is a sign of a very defensive nationalism, which extends all the way from the far right in England right through to the sort of liberal left, and that's what that Guardian editorial told us. And that, and that is a, you know, dangerous phenomenon, but it's also an interesting one to be understood, 
And as it changes, hopefully, as, as England comes to terms with the fact that it no longer runs a third of the world, it is, you know, I mean, that's England, UK runs a third of the world, you know, Scotland was obviously just as competitive as the empire. But, but as England comes to terms with the fact that the UK no longer runs a third of the world and gets over that kind of imperial loss and imperial longing, It'll be interesting to watch how the politics around language does or doesn't shift in that period. And I think that, you know, it'll be a very good sign if it gets to the point that you describe where people embrace and understand and are excited about the many different languages rather than seeing them as a threat every time there's any serious suggestion of investment. Okay. Well, definitely. And that's absolutely fascinating to think about. Now, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for listening to Current. Remember you can tweet us at at currentddr or email us at current at dublindigitalradio.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on the Dublin Digital Radio SoundCloud.